This morning we start a new series. Uh, We'll be uh, in the book of Genesis. Today we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37. We'll be making our way through verses 1 to verse 11. And we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. Now this story has it all. It's got a totally dysfunctional family. It's got betrayal and prison time. It's got the underdog beating the odds. It's got a fantastic reunion. This story is so great that even the secular world has been enamored with it. Andrew Lloyd Webber turned into the smash musical uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And Thomas Mann, the celebrated German novelist and Nobel laureate, uh, turned the story into a trilogy, which was published in 1930. Agnes E. Meyer, writer for the New York Times Book Review, said of Mann's series, Purely as a narrative and background, there is a magnificent story here which exceeds in drama, opulence, and movement anything that Hollywood has ever dreamed. This is a good story. Ultimately, Joseph's story is a story of faith, a story of forgiveness, a story of God's providence. Today we're going to start at the beginning of Joseph's story, but before we can fully understand the context or fully understand the situations that we'll be reading about, we need to know more of the context. That's kind of how that works. We need to get a deeper idea of just how dysfunctional Joseph's family is. Joseph's father is Jacob. Now Jacob, as some of us might recall, cheated his older brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. Esau was understandably furious, and to get some distance from his brother, Jacob went to work for his uncle Laban, and there he fell in love with Laban's daughter Rachel. Yeah, they're cousins. It's a little awkward. I don't really understand how all those things work, but that's just how that goes. Kissing cousins, it's a deal. Jacob reached an agreement with Laban where he will work for Laban for seven years, after which time Rachel will be given to him in marriage. Laban agrees. But as Jacob is working with Laban, Laban's ventures are blessed. He's prospering greatly, and so he doesn't want Jacob to leave his service. And so, after the seven years of working for Laban, the time comes for Jacob and Rachel to be married. Now, there are some things in the Bible that don't make sense, and we'll never be able to wrap our minds around them, like the Trinity, and how Jesus rose from the dead, the parting of the Red Sea, and manna from heaven, etc., And then there are some things in the Bible that don't make sense and we don't necessarily want to wrap our minds around. Like, what happened with Jacob on the night he was to marry Rachel? You see, somehow Laban pulled one over on Jacob. Maybe he spiked the wine. You know, I don't really know what took place. And I don't think I necessarily want to know what took place. But what ended up happening is that Jacob spent the night with Laban's older daughter Leah instead of the daughter he loved, the daughter that he had intended to marry, the daughter he had been promised, Rachel. And so now Jacob's married the wrong sister, and he goes to Laban furious and demands to have Rachel as his wife. And Laban says, sure, you can marry Rachel as long as you work for me another seven years. And I mean, poor Leah. It's doubtful that she was thrilled with the idea of marrying someone who is pining for her sister. And God looked at Leah with favor. He took pity on her and blessed her with six sons. Meanwhile, Rachel could not have children. And as Leah is pumping out boy after boy, Rachel is struggling and she's jealous. And so she goes to Jacob and says, Please take my servant Bilhah as your wife and her children will be considered mine. Because that worked out so well for Abraham and Sarah, right? 
Well, Jacob does marry Bilhah, and she bears two sons, and now not to be outdone, Leah's like, hey man, if you're gonna do that with her, you gotta do that with me too. So then uh, Leah gives Jacob, or has Jacob marry her servant, Zilpah, and Zilpah bears two sons. Meanwhile, Leah herself has another two, and then finally there's the cry, it's a girl, as Leah gives birth to Dinah. And then we read that finally God remembered Rachel. He answered her prayer by giving her a son, and she named him Joseph. Rachel would eventually have one more boy, but she would die giving birth to the one that they named Benjamin. Now, I just threw a ton of story at you, but it's important to understand at least the surface level of the crazy dysfunction of Jacob's family before we can grasp what is going to take place in our passage this morning. Jacob is married to two sisters who are wild with jealousy. One is jealous because she doesn't feel loved. One is jealous because she can't have kids. And Jacob is super fertile. I don't know if you're keeping track, but he had 13 children with four different women, and 12 of them were boys. And it is into this situation that our text drops us this morning. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 37, 1 to 11. We read the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and then suddenly my sheath rose and and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine, and they all bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would feed the miracle, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls, Lord. We give this to you. We thank and praise you. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I've lived a few places in this great country, and And I've also had the opportunity to to live in a few places outside of this great country. And so with that, I've, I've had to drive in quite a few different locations. And I know that there are disagreements between who has the worst traffic. I've sat in traffic on I-5 trying to head from Olympia to Seattle, that nice bumper to bumper for a few hours. I've sat in traffic in LA where it doesn't feel like you're even crawling as the sun just roasts you inside the car. I've sat in traffic in Calgary, Alberta, 
on the Queen Anne Expressway trying to make my way from South Calgary to North Calgary. And if you're really lucky and it's in the winter, the roads are just frozen and you're moving so slowly that you can't gain any traction. You just start sliding in your lane, praying that your tires will catch before you bump into the guy next to you. And of course, I've sat in traffic here on the East Coast both trying to navigate my way south through Washington, D.C. at a very inopportune time, and I've been trying to get home from the Bronx Zoo on the Cross Bronx Expressway, and man, traffic is the worst. I hate traffic. And there are parts of traffic that I can understand, right? Like, there's elements of it that we get. I, I get people trying to get home from work all at the same time and just clogging the one pipe. I can understand traffic when there's road construction, though that doesn't stop me from moaning about how they decided to conduct their road construction while I'm driving on it. I do understand accidents. Accidents happen. People are people. We're all going to mess that up every once in a while. But you know what traffic totally drives me batty? When there's traffic on my side of the freeway, when the accident happened on the other side of the freeway, you know what I'm talking about? There is nothing on the road, nothing in the path of the people just going about their business, just driving, just, just do what you're supposed to do. Just do the thing, man. But what causes the traffic? We all gotta stop and look. We all wanna take a good look at the disaster that has befallen someone else. And as we are all focused on, on someone else's problems and what's happening over there, what ends up happening is dysfunction. Neither side of the highway becomes functional. Our side has an, or one side has an actual problem, and the other side is so busy watching the mess that neither side is functioning properly. As I was thinking about the dysfunction of Jacob's family, the utter craziness that is taking place in that house, the first thought that I had was, man, am I glad I haven't been having to deal with that my whole life. I mean, yeah, I've had to deal with the jokes about trying to start my own 12 tribes, especially after naming two of my children, Judah and Asher. But come on, look how messed up those people were. And I sit and I sit there for a while and being so thankful that I'm not in a, in a relationship, in a situation that is quite as jacked up as Jacob's. And then the Lord begins to work on my heart. I may not be experiencing the exact dysfunction that is going on in the household of Jacob, but that doesn't mean that my life is free of dysfunction. Each and every one of us have dysfunctional elements in our lives. So just as no matter where we've driven in the country or the world, we are able to relate to being frustrated, frustrated about being stuck in traffic that really should only be applicable to the other side, so we can all relate to having areas of dysfunction in our lives. And sometimes it's tempting for us to, func to focus on the dysfunction around us and, and hope and to believe that, that we ourselves are not touched by that dysfunction. I mean, the dysfunction I'm talking about has taken place in the house of Jacob, but we all know that this story is going to really be about Joseph. And there was a pretty popular view that, that held that Joseph, like, above the rest of his family. I mean, look at what happens in the rest of the story. Look at his faith. Look at how God used him. This, this dude's got to be pretty solid. Uh, for, for this to, to take place, for God to use him in the ways that he does. So, so we like to think that we are the Joseph in our own story, that this function that is happening around us isn't really a part of us, and we truly are, are, are above it. 
And if that's the trap that we fall into, let's take a closer look at the protagonist of this story, shall we? Joseph isn't an idiot. Joseph understands the tense drama that is taking place in his father's house. He grasps the tension between his father's wives. The kid is 17 when this story starts. He wasn't born blind, deaf, or dumb. The kid knows, like he gets it. And this son, we are told, is the favorite son of Jacob, further highlighting the dysfunction going on in this house. Parents aren't supposed to have favorites, and, and if they do, they definitely shouldn't be letting any of the other kids know about this. But yeah, Joseph knows it. And so this favorite son goes into the fields to see how well his brothers are doing their jobs. And our text this morning says that he brought their father a bad report about them. Now we may read that and think, okay, they're doing a bad job. So he had to bring a bad report. But that's not how the Hebrew tells the tale. For the word that is translated report is always used everywhere else that it shows up in scripture as an untrue report. Added to that, the word for evil, ra'ah, is used to qualify the report. That's where they get the word bad. So what is really happening is that Joseph goes out into the fields, watches his brothers at work, and then brings his father an intentionally misleading report of their actions designed to slander his brothers. Any of us here today familiar with what we would consider a tattletale? As if every one of us hasn't been a tattletale at some point in our lives. Now there are times when it's important to tell on someone because it's for their own good, right? For the good of someone else. If there is abuse taking place or if someone is doing something dangerous, potentially harmful to themselves or someone else, then those are important tales to tell. But I don't really even consider that tattletaling. We have this rule in our house about screen time. The boys don't get it as much as they would like to, but it could be argued that maybe they get it a little more than they should. That said, they are still constantly trying to figure out ways to get as much of it as possible. But they know when they are allowed to, and they know who is able to give them permission to. Well, one day I had one of my young gentlemen come up and tell me that one of my other young gentlemen was sneaking screen time on one of the iPads. Come to find out, I was only told because the young gentleman on the iPad wouldn't watch the show that the tattler wanted to watch. Telling me about the screen time infraction had nothing to do with wanting anything other than to get the one brother in trouble. That was the singular purpose of my son, and that, in our text this morning, was the singular purpose of Joseph. Joseph was an incredibly privileged tattletale. At 17, this is no six-year-old telling on his brother. This is, at the time, a man telling on his brothers. And then we have delusional Jacob. He'd always loved Rachel more, and so even though Leah was the one who gave him his eldest son, Reuben, it was Joseph that Jacob gave what we have come to understand as a coat of many colors. What we may not understand is what this coat signified in their culture. This gift of Jacob's to Joseph signified that Joseph would be the one who would inherit as if he were the firstborn. He was the firstborn to the wife that, that Jacob loved most, and so throwing birth order to the wind, Jacob declared his favorite son, Joseph, as his heir. This is a total slap in the face to Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah, and all of their sons. But this is what Jacob wanted, and so this is what Jacob did, and there is no way that 17-year-old Joseph didn't understand all of what is taking place here. 
And yet that didn't stop him from sharing the dreams he was having with his brothers and eventually with the rest of the family. His dreams of how their sheaves, their bundles of grain, would all bow down before his bundle of grain. And then the dream about the sun, moon, and stars, and how even his mother and father would bow down before him. I mean, dude's mom isn't even alive. At this point, Rachel has passed away, giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And yet, there is the moon bowing before him. It's no wonder that the brothers were so incredibly angry at Joseph. This privileged little punk is intentionally lying about them to get them in trouble with their father. He's usurped their birthrights, he's the favorite of dear old dad, and now he's rubbing all of their faces in it and sharing dreams about how all of them will one day bow before him? Would any of us have liked having Joseph as a brother? As much as we may want to exalt Joseph in some way in the beginning of the story here, the dude was all about throwing gas on the fire of a dysfunction taking place in his family. And as much as we may hate to admit it, we do the same things. Our dysfunction may not look exactly like the dysfunction taking place in the house of Jacob, but that doesn't mean that our dysfunction is any better or more acceptable to God. We may be more polished. We may be better at hiding the things that are wrong in our lives, but being hidden is quite a different thing than not existing. Each of us is dysfunctional, like Jacob, like Joseph, like the rest of the family in our story this morning. Each of, every one of us is broken and not functioning as God originally intended and it is because of that reality, because of the truth of our need, that I am so thankful for stories like this story of Joseph. For what did God do to this completely dysfunctional family? He kept his promises to them. The dreams that Joseph has, they come true, but God doesn't use them as a means to humiliate the family. He uses them as a means of provision for the family. Now we're going to spend a large portion of the summer taking a deep look at the story of Joseph and his family. And I'm not trying to bust out spoilers here, but the reality is that though they were incredibly dysfunctional, even though they treated each other horribly, even though they fought with each other and, and treated each other cruelly, that did not stop God from loving them. That did not stop God from providing for them. And that did not stop God from keeping his promises to them. And the same is true for us. God will keep his promises to us. His promise to love us. His promise to care for us. His promise to save us and to deliver us. The answers to those promises may not always look the way that we want them to, as Joseph and his brothers found out. And as we'll explore in the coming weeks. But that does not mean that God did not keep his promises. And we know that God keeps his promises, not just because of stories like those of Joseph, but because of the person of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, come to live among man. Jesus, who is perfect, but was born into a world of imperfection and dysfunction. And Jesus, who took the price that needed to be paid for the dysfunction upon his own shoulders as he carried that cross up the hill to Golgotha. Christ, who let himself be nailed to the cross, let himself be scarred for our sin. Christ, who felt deeply the abandonment of the Father because of our sin. And Christ, who stayed on that cross. And there he died, paying the price that we could not. But he did not stay dead, for three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And so when we believe in Jesus, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, the dysfunction that surrounds us, the dysfunction that we have caused has been taken by Christ and we have been given robes of purity for in Christ we have been forgiven as we repent as we confess God forgives and through faith through baptism we have been given robes of Christ's righteousness 
And so when God sees us, He doesn't see our dysfunction, but instead sees the perfection of Jesus. This is the promise that God has made to us. This is the promise that He has kept, the promise that we can rest in. God loves you. God wants you to be part of His family, and God can use you in spite of the dysfunction that embarrasses you and brings you shame. For if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, God has clothed you with righteousness. I pray that this is an encouragement to you. It has certainly been an encouragement to me. Even this week, I have not been able to get everything down in the ways that I wanted to. Time got away from me. I didn't get to do all the things that were on my list. And then some things that were important got dropped off. And I didn't even realize it until they were lying broken on the floor. And yet I am confident that God can use even those broken pieces to His glory. For he seems intent on continuing to use me, a broken vessel, to his glory, and he is absolutely intent on using you for his glory. For he longs to use each of us in his mission to bring about his kingdom. I don't know where you're at with your walk with the Lord today. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'm going to be around. But what I do know is that God keeps his promises. And I know that God can use you and will use you in despite of the dysfunction that is taking place in your life. Know that God will strengthen you, helping you to clean that dysfunction up. But He won't wait to use you until that's done. For He longs to be in a relationship with you, and He longs to send you into the mission field right now, as you are. What an amazing and fantastic God we serve. Amen.